the Tenuous Links podcast, home of the Golf Barons. Offering bloviated opinions on all things golf, discussing the game's biggest problems and some solutions to them as loosely as possible. Come add some swagger to your swing. Hello Barons, welcome to the Tenuous Links Golf Podcast, home of the Golf Barons, now playing on KO and Foxtel On Demand. Now here we are heading into arguably the biggest event on the golf calendar, at least on the biennial one, the Ryder Cup, over this time at Whistling Straits in Wisconsin. And to join Philly and me to muse over it all today is a returning special guest, Executive Vice President of Tour Edge Golf. You might know him as John from Chicago, John Craig. Welcome back to Tenuous Links. Thanks for having me, boys. Nice to be here. And Philly looking sharp with a, an interesting haircut. Just looking sharp. It's it's my king, John. Um, but, John, I thought you would have added another word to the title by now. I was actually, uh, when Damo asked me what your official title was, I almost threw in senior executive vice president. I, I mean, surely you've been there long enough. <laughs> uh, yes, good idea. I'll, I'll, throw, <laughs> I'll throw that into the meeting tomorrow. Thank you. Now, gents, Ryder Cup. Now, this is my this is my favorite, or clearly my favorite golf event, and it's in the top handful of all sporting events for mine. Um, you know, two teams playing for pride, not for money. The highlights it highlights the genuine love of the game, love of golf, not just the you know it's a job mentality, and it allows players more creativity, more room to show their passion. You know, not surprising, Seve was a Ryder Cup marble. What is it about? about the cup that you love? I'll go first. I think up until this year, everyone's attitude towards the Ryder Cup has reflected exactly what you've just said, should it? And then this year someone chose to actually say what they thought <laughs> of the Ryder Cup. And we might touch on that later or we might not. But the Ryder Cup is, is team. It's golf's opportunity. It's like playing pennant. I mean, being brought up in in Melbourne golf is a very strong scene. Playing pennant team golf always existed in that part. Cheering on a teammate, knowing that even though I had lost again um, six and five or eight and six on one occasion, um, that our team was still in with a shot, and it's I, I had to sacrifice myself for the good of the team in, in terms of ability. So it's just that flipping golf on its head, as we saw with the Solheim Cup, um, and, and making golf purely team as opposed to a. Um, Zurich Classic or whatever that other, other weird event is. Well, Philby, I think you're absolutely spot on there because, I mean, further to that, in Australia or the UK, we have a much stronger culture because you've got to understand the the high school system and the US college golf system over here is all built on four-round stroke play. They really play other than the US amateur and a couple of the key amateur titles where our bread and butter growing up was pennant golf, Um club competition, a lot more match play. They, they really don't play much match play over here. It's, you know, this the, the universe here and the PGA Tour, for that matter, is built on four-round stroke play. And, uh, again, that's something I'm sure we'll touch on a little bit later because it does present the Europeans Ryder Cup after Ryder Cup with a u- unique opportunity to play beyond their world rankings because, I mean, at the end of the day, their world rankings are ranking them for four-round stroke play uh, and not head-to-head match play, which is for anyone who's played it, a completely different game, albeit golf. And the idea of having an eight but only losing one hole is my favourite thing. I mean, this is, I think, the fallback position for a lot of us in golf and why match play is so awesome is you can have an eight or a nine and I've lost the same number of holes as I would have had I made a bogey and he just, you know, my, my opponent 
lipped in for par. So it's just that get out of jail free. That's what match play enables you to do and then you move on. And it's the ability to move on that I think is the difference. It's not how you play the hole. It's what you do if you've lost one and not losing your head. Uh, not that I've ever won one. I think there's another key with it as well with the Europeans that uh, I was talking with a fine gentleman the other day uh, and just to get the name dropping out of the way early, his name might be Bernard oh, Langer. do it. But Bernie and I were having a <laughs> the other day. The master. And he put forth an interesting theory that the slower greens of Europe lend themselves to better match play putters because you grow up uh, learning to hit a 10-foot putt just inside the hole and you have to hit it in there. The fast greens of the US and the stroke play mentality, if you start firmly week after week hitting those putts, you're hitting lips and spinning out to six feet and you can't make a living doing that. And that was quite an interesting observation from one who should know that the Europeans all, all growing up on slower greens are better clutch putters Although, uh, what was the year Bernhard missed? One, 99. Reasonably, reasonably important it down was, at Kiwa, I think it was. Well, he missed 99, John. He, um, that, we'll get on to Brookline too. He, 99, he was overlooked um, and things didn't end up well for the, the US team. But, yes, he did happen to miss it. There was an important putt that he did miss it at Kiwa. Yeah. But we, anyway, we won't bring a, that a, bit of insight, a bit of insight from Bernie. I like Bernie. We're fans. We're definitely fans. The B-Dog. It's hard not to. Before we get really deep into the Ryder Cup, guys, was there anything else you wanted to get off your chest this week? I, I hate – sorry, I just need to make a correction. I hate not listening to John correctly. I thought he was saying the Ryder Cup he missed, not the critical putt he missed. So my hate is my inability to listen. I have, I've gonna I'm going I'm I'm to flow that into another hate, though. I'm done with aim point. I know I've said this before. Haven't we covered it like three times? Yeah, we have covered it, and I'm going to keep this quick. But watching the European event, watching Denmark Open, watching Canizares from three feet not only do a single direction aim point, do a double direction aim point whilst almost hovering over Nigel Mansell's ball, and I don't know if it's Nigel, but his last name is Mansell, so Nigel's his nickname, followed by watching Max Homer's caddy on the last hole um, of the event that he one where he's in the second cut of rough and his caddy aim points him because he's got a putter and then declares that it's a one-finger break despite having to come down two sets of stairs. It's, and then he misses, of course. It's bull crap and is just an excuse for missing putts and to try and make themselves look better than they are. That was quick like aim point. <laughs> Thanks, John. Sorry about that. I was going to say it wasn't nearly as quick as he <laughs> said it was going to be. Um, JC, anything anything upsetting you at the moment you want to get off your chest? Uh, yes. As an expat living overseas, and you guys are living, the, the I guess, right at the forefront of it, but the fact I can't come home to Australia is driving me absolute nuts. And I was having a chat to Stephen Leaney, who I'm sure most of your listeners will have known, a fine Australian player. And have a listen to this for a story. So Leany's telling me that on his last visit home, he's at the hotel in Sydney. He's done 12 days, so he's inside of getting out. And it literally is in quarantine, full-blown in hotel, can't leave the hotel room, 12 days in. 
somehow, somewhere, there's been an outbreak on his floor through a guard or didn't didn't know the detail. But anyway, outbreak, his entire floor then had to extend and repeat the 14-day quarantine, giving him just the lazy 26 days straight in the hotel. He said it was just brutal. It would have sent some people off the edge. So I, uh, I have a 93-year-old mother on the Gold Coast who I've not seen for two years and uh, at this point in time have absolutely no idea when I'll next be able to get home for a visit. So it might sound like uh, us internationals moaning and whinging, but, you know, the, the cost of these quarantines and the border uh, lockdowns are far and wide-reaching. Yeah, I'm not going to add a di- any different hate. That is my hate as well. The political overreach and all of this has just been madness. So fingers crossed we can all get back to some sense of normality. Now let's it's get- really important that we get something positive. I love this roller coaster of battling for a win. I was watching Christopher Broberg um, and all you need to do to understand what it meant is, one, watch the 12th hole highlight and then finally watch his post-round interview. Um, the raw emotion of, of a roller coaster is... Um, absolutely extraordinary to move from an unassailable lead to almost an improbable win and then back again um, with a chip in. If you want to know how to grind out a bogey, watch highlights of his 12th hole in the Danish Open and it is unbelievable. So I just love I love the roller coaster of battling and fighting and I think it's really pertinent for the week we've got. John, have you got a love of any description? I, I do have a love. Uh, I was very lucky last week to visit Philadelphia Cricket Club <laughs> with a fine gentleman guest of mine and uh did you have to take your own whites uh, yes compulsory whites nice one prefer the creams myself but yeah (laughs) killing me uh but it was introduced to a new game called snake which i've never heard of before and the snake is as simple as this that in your group and you can play for 10 cents a unit or a dollar unit or a hundred dollars a unit depending on how well you are we played for a dollar a unit u.s but the snake threads through three putts during your round. So if we hit off as a three and fill you, th- you three putt the second, well, you hold the snake for a dollar. And we play a couple of more holes. Damo, you three putt the seventh. You now hold the snake for $2. I three putt the eighth. I hold it for $3. And so on and so forth until whoever gets caught holding the snake by the 18th has to pay that amount to the other players in the group. And it sounds... Overtly simple, but gentlemen, give it a try. It adds a great edge to your game. There are no longer those three-foot gimmies on 16, <laughs> 17 and, and 18, and it keeps everybody in the game in every single hole. Even if you're out of the hole, you've still got to putt out and hit it on the green. Anyway, a great, great game. I can thoroughly, thoroughly recommend it called Snake. As a serial three-putter, I think I'm going to have to take out a mortgage before I play this. Um, well, certainly if we play together, Sure, I think it'll be neck and neck to see who um, we might have to move to a four-putt snake. Um, but I think that idea of, you know, we talk a lot about practising with with pressure and understanding pressure and trying to introduce it as much as possible other than just performance. And I think when you look other people in the eye and know that you're carrying a bit of coin, um, I like that. I think that's, um, that is on my list. I'm going to play that at Philadelphia Cricket Club, John. I look, I look forward to playing it with you there. <laughs> that's you. about the only way you'll get on. Yeah, that's, that's what I was looking for. Anyway, moving on to Ryder Cup, boys, there's always plenty of discussion uh, around the layouts that host these events. Whistling Straits is pretty much purpose-built for this kind of a championship-style golf. 
um, seems a pretty perfect place for Ryder Cup. John, you were lucky enough to see it firsthand recently. Yes, Dan, I've uh, been lucky to to play the straights a couple of times of, of recent times and visually guys it's going to be probably well the most stunning Ryder Cup that I can remember in recent time because whistling straights really is something out of the box when it comes to its set right on the edge of, uh, of Lake Michigan um, there's a, a lovely cliff that runs all the way they moved 415 million cubic meters because it was actually completely flat ground before they built it so don't get too lost in the natural beauty yeah. because uh, it's the, the natural beauty of how well tractors work. Um, but, but having said that, I actually got on the phone the last couple of days and I've had my spies up at Whistling and uh, we're calling this the Whispers from Whistling. Ooh. So I've, I've got some good mail. He's named his own segment. <laughs> is that a first? Yes, it is a first, but I like it. Go with it. All right. Um, so as is the captain's want in the Ryder Cup, the, the captain of the home team has a significant say in how he recommends the super set up the course. So we've all heard about the American bombers. Well, my word is that amazingly, at about the 300-yard mark through to about the 325-yard mark, the rough has got very thin. Wow. I don't know how that possibly could have happened. So we're going to see some wide-open driving in a couple of areas, and while there's rough, apparently they've thinned the rough out in those key areas because if you go through the US team, I think there's 10 of the 12 guys that consistently carry at 300. So they've given them a little bit of uh, room to play with, so to speak. Uh, we've had some rain up here recently, so the course is not going to be running firm and fast. Uh, I'm told the, the game's going to be played in the air. Uh, the greens will hold. We're getting storms here tonight. So we're down in Chicago. We're about 200 k's south of Whistling. But there's a huge storm front coming across tonight, right across the edge of Lake Michigan. It's going to drop a, another couple of inches. And uh, so, yeah, it's going to be a pretty soft Whistling, especially in the first few days. And the weather's going to be pretty calm but pretty cool. Uh, but a little bit of wind is forecast for Saturday, which uh, should create a little bit of carnage because it's probably the most difficult course I've played. I mean, it's brutal. If it gets windy, does it, does that swing in favour of the Europeans a little bit? Many of those, you know, many of whom have grown up on Lynx courses, does, does that work in their favour more? Yeah, I think there's going to be a great yin and yang here, Damo, because my, my also my whisperers tell me that one of the uniquenesses of whistling is that none of it is in front of you. And so by that I mean you're rarely seeing the ball land off the tee. So you're hitting over dunes or humps or over a hill or down a hill. And so that's really going to play more into the European mentality of, of not having, you know, stand up, look at, see it, hit it. Uh, and it is also going to play into the hands of those who have prepared really well. Um, it's going to be nothing like uh, La Nationale or whatever it was where they played in France, which very much was more out in front of you, but, you know, narrow, thick. This is more wispy, rough, but, you know, blind and, and really is very link-style course. So while the length will lend itself to the US team, I think the style of golf is really going to even it up back to the Europeans who, who grew up on this. And, and being a – because it's a Pete – Pete Dye design course, isn't it? Which it's kind of different, indeed, very different to a lot of his other designs. But my understanding is that his design strategy with it was to really kind of mess with the mind 
with the you know the visual distractions or um, you know sort of that optical illusions from you know lower set T boxes, semi blind sort of shots in there, and and I've been reading up about it that it seems like it's all going it's going to be all about sort of the angles with which um, you, you can attack the green, I suppose. So being really precise where you want the ball to be can change dramatically how you how you get um, get onto the green. It's going to be a case of the team that's the best at geometry is is going to end up holding the right account. Yeah, look, I think, as always, the team that putts best will win um, because match play just comes down to the people that hold the clutch putts make the difference. But it's as I touched on, I think it's going to come down a lot to preparation and... Uh, the US historically have not been renowned for their pre- preparation and Stricker can only do so much. Yeah, Stricker's a, a local guy. When they say a local guy, he's from 150 miles away, but uh, that's that's local over here, or local enough. Uh, it'll be how much work those guys are prepared to invest to understand the nuances of a Pete Dye masterpiece because you're absolutely spot on in your research demo because most people... Uh, on the architectural side, I'll tell you, this is his finest piece of work where he best achieved the fact that, you know, er- everything is kind of subtle and hidden and difficult. And and then at other times, there's just brutal difficulty, like holes like 17, which will play about 230 bar three. The left edge of the green is a cliff down to the lake. Um, if you remember Jason Day, he had a beautiful four iron deliberately to the front edge of the green, giving him like a 40s foot putt so he wouldn't have to deal with the left side of the green. Uh, so the matches that get there will, I mean, you'll see some clutch shots. The guys that can fly it to that back left pin or have the courage to hit it to the back uh, half of the green because the green's kind of slopes a lot right to left, but it's really front half, back half, and the back half is tucked into the lake. It's the most spectacular, stunning hole. And then 18 is just a brute. I think it's 490 yards. Uh, hitting over a hitting over a ravine, uh, and then your second shot's also a whole over a whole bunch of magumbi. And uh, I can remember hitting driver three wood about six feet off the right edge of the green and lost my ball. Well, well, that was going to be one of my questions, John, is about the green surrounds and the green setup. A lot's been made of, particularly Bryson. I'll just pick on Bryson um, with it from a short game perspective um, of the fact that if the ball's sitting in rough, he seems to be able to have a swing at it. But the minute he's got tighter lies, equivalent to probably the sand belt, more of the European courses, he might struggle a bit more. What's it like when you get to the greens? Is it classic island? Because again, this sort of belly bunion feel, or is it? Does it get a little bit more sepo like? No, definitely a bit more sepo, um, and it should be like belly bunion, but with the softest, they're going to play it. We're going to have a bit of wispy, wispy stuff more so than deep lush stuff. So it'll be pretty playable from any of the runoffs, and there are more runoffs than traditionally there are around a US championship course, but uh, it's still going to be pretty soft from uh, what my whisperers tell me. And there's nothing like setting a course up exactly to your team, which is exactly what happened for Europe at Le Golf National de Paris. Um, So I suppose if they've got that opportunity, um, Stricker may as well, as long as his team then don't spray it beyond the cleared out areas um, and actually behave as a team. Well, part of part of Pete Dye's magic is whistling. Actually, isn't that tight? I mean, at the end of the day, it's a uh, it's a public facility, and, and you get all sorts of players. So it's it's difficult, but it's it's playable. It's not going to strangle you off the tee, and you know, I think that's where the US will be favoured. Uh, but it'll still come down to putting. 
and, and who's best prepared, in, in my opinion. The makeup of the teams is another interesting one, isn't it? It's kind of with the US, you've got a lot of younger, big bombing, brash, um, the big bombing, brash brigade, I guess, uh, to a degree. And then you've got Europe's almost, it's almost a dad's army to a degree. You, you know, Paul Casey, Sergio, Ian Poulter, Lee Westwood, a lot of experience, uh, Ryder Cup experience in there, but definitely, but definitely in the back half of their careers. Did you think that's a bit of an attempt to counteract what will be a one-sided parochial US crowd? Sort of rely heavily on that experience of those older players? Yeah, the, the crowd will be nuts up there. Uh, you know, the pent-up demand for sport here, and we're seeing it, NFL started two weeks ago, and the crowds have just been, they've been going absolute ape droppings. Um, so the crowd will be huge. Um, it will be 90% US because of the travel restrictions, it's not so easy even to come off over from the UK. Um, but I think, Damo, it's more more a consequence of, I mean, could you think of three better match players that you'd want to pick on your team? I mean, Sergio is potentially, you know, has an unbel- in, unbelievable record in Ryder Cup and it's not, not by accident. And he's had that great record through good and bad years of his, you know, regular tour career. I just think those guys have a grit about them and they actually give a shit. Like it really matters to the Europeans far more than, well, this will be the big test this year for for this American team, whether they can demonstrate that they actually give a shit. Yeah. I mean, I sort of see it as, to a degree, having these, these really experienced players sort of bolster the team. If the US can't win with the amount of things that are going to be in their favour this time around, it's going to cause... It's going to cause um, ruptures for years to come in the Ryder Cup, US Ryder Cup team. So I think it's, in a way, it's Europe almost trying to completely break it, the It's Brookline. It is, this is no Brookline all over again. And, and I mentioned 99 incorrectly with John before, but, but this is Brookline all over again in that at, at Brookline in 99, the US team had 10 players ranked in the world's top 16. Um, this year, they've got 11 of the top 16 ranked players in the world, uh, and the only one that is outside is Scheffler's mum. Sorry, Scotty Scheffler um, at 21. This sounds like the first time in the history of podcasting that you have actually done a bit of research before. Well, so so they're, they're favourites on paper, and with that comes the stress and the pressure. And if you look at what happened um, in Brookline, and there's a um, there's a couple of interesting things, and I'll just I'll, I'll bore everyone with a, a little bit of my brief research. But but this is where the similarities will exist. So at, at Brookline, um, there was a combination of, of rookies, and the European team had three rookies, being Sandlin, Vanderveld, and Coltart, um, who all weren't played until the last day. But an experienced player like Langer was overlooked um, for the team by Mark James. So by bringing in a Polter, to your point, by bringing in a Polter or bringing in a Sergio as a captain's pick. Um, let alone Larry, who looks like a battle-hardened Ryder Cup player, just has never played before. Um, John, I think to your point, it actually really bolstered things up. But if you think about the pressure that then is applied to the US team, which I'm sure was what led to this boiling over that happened at, at Brookline. And I've got a, a nice little piece here um, about Sam Torrance, um, the much-esteemed Ryder Cup captain of the time. Um, and here's what we, he said following the, the last day at Brookline. In 99, it was the most disgraceful and disgusting day in the history of professional golf. The spectators behaved like animals. And John, to your point about, you know, um, spectators have been 
you know, screaming out for sport and live sport and everything else. Anyway, the spectators behaved like animals and some of the American players, most notably Tom Lehman, ooh, uh, acted like madmen. Um, it went on to say Lehman and Torrance apparently had a, a bit of a telephone call where Torrance said to him, I saw you run 50 yards from the 17th green back down the fairway and stand in front of the crowd, fist pumping at them as if in a frenzy. I watched you, I saw you, and what I said was that your behaviour was not that of a man of God. Um, and apparently there was dead silence. And then, and this is a measure of the man, John, and you are a big fan of Tom Lehman. Sam, he said, you make a good point, and I apologise from the bottom of my heart. Um, but Sam Torrance went on to say, it was, it was just not right, not on that day and not on any day. And I think that's what happens when you get a pressure applied to a team who aren't a team. And Brooks Kepka made this completely clear, that there's not any team in the way the US behave, not at a Solheim Cup and not at a Ryder Cup. Yet you go to... It's the team of champions versus champion team concept, isn't it? Well, it's me versus we. You, you, go, to the, you go to the European teams, again, both Solheim and, and Ryder Cup, and there's this, um, there's this innate team-first idea that they immediately flick off and lose... Well, the, my perception is they lose ego and they become a collective, whereas the Americans can't turn the ego button off because it's still all about them. And I think it was remarkably honest of Brooks to actually just declare that and just say it's an interruption to everything I've ever known. Well, you are talking about some of the greatest narcissists you'll ever meet on this US team. I mean, that's what makes them so good as, uh, you know, individual sportsmen. I mean, that's part of the... It's part of what goes with their success is that these guys have to be so insular and so focused and so selfish. Um, you know, that level of success breeds, you know, that's the horse and the cart. And, you know, it's an interesting argument I heard. Is it might not be so that the European are such a good team, but it's that the Americans will never be one because they're just not born and bred that way. What do you think it does to the legacy of the Ryder Cup? Let's say the US go down. And it's just a disjointed, um, and given the fact that I think Europe will win, I'm declaring it. But You know what it's going to be, Phil? It's going to be magnificent. <laughs> carnage over here, to quote our dear late friend Tony Gregg, but it is going to be complete carnage. They will go crazy here if the Americans get beaten. And, uh, you know, Wisconsin is an interesting part of the world to begin with. So, you know, they, they, they will genuinely go nuts. But, you know, poor old Brooks will... DJ will jump into their separate private G5s and float back to their supermodel girlfriends and go out on their $20 million boat and probably won't put two seconds of thought to it. And that's just the reality. So, the, But the media will have a field day. There's no doubt. Has it got the potential to impact on the legacy of the Ryder Cup? Like if, if it's a – it won't be a disaster. Like it'll come down to a point. But, um, you know, will be their players there sitting there saying – like Patrick Reid – is for mine the the consummate um, Ryder Cup player where he might everyone in the team room might hate him, but in his mind he's part of them and he's with them, even though they hate him and trying to stab him. And by the um, way, Phil, any anyone who listens to this pod knows he's actually your love child. Well, I just happen to rate his ability, but also I rate his passion and desire to to want to carry a team on his shoulder, like he feels that it seems that he has that genuine desire to throw a team on his shoulders and take them forward. Yeah, not always honest, but there's that 
there's all those traits that sometimes come right up you overlook. Well, it's that street street yeah. fighter mentality, isn't it? I mean, it's like who, yeah. who do you want on your football team? The kid from Footscray who grew up with nothing or, you know, the Melbourne grammar boy that – sorry, Damo, is that you? No. <laughs> no, certainly not me. <laughs> it's close. What was it? Scotch. Might have been Kerry. <laughs> Kerry. No, even worse, Kerry, the yellow. <laughs> Actually, you're sporting the Kerry colours today too, Damo. Playing footy at Caulfield Grammar. Anyway, what's your point, John? My, my point was that, that that's what the American team will meet. You know, you have Thomas and Spieth who are made of the right stuff, but uh, Scheffler, I think, will be fantastic. Uh, you know, you, you do have some real talent there, and but, you know, you, you've got those three or four real leaders in DeChambeau, Brooks, DJ, you know. Are those the guys you really want holding that eight-footer for your life in a team event? So, 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 what do we make of the team harmony in these, you know, of the two sides? The US, we've obviously seen, it's got more cracks in a nudist page. Are we? Are they? Is there any chance that they can get together and become a team, or find a way to, to get? Can, can Stricker possibly bring this group together? There's absolutely no chance that you can change the behaviour of twelve individual ego driven i mean whoever captains the european team it's not their great captaincy that creates the team it's it's a it's culture that follows through, isn't it? yeah. it's culture is exactly the right word damo and and that's going to be an interesting thing and you, you talk about well legacy and all the rest of it you know the next 10 Ryder cups will tell the story as to as to where the legacy of the Ryder cup is heading and and how the americans can actually at some point in time field a team that uh, you know, America really gets behind and consistently can win. I'm of the belief, though, probably contrary to you guys, that this week's could well be one of the most epic down-of-the-wire events going around. Um, and it had me thinking about all those, you know, the really close ones over the time. Phil, you've mentioned Brookline. Um, what were other cups past that sort of make the hairs on the back of your neck stand up? Which, which ones are your most memorable ones? Well, for mine, it's, it's Madonna. Um, and again, I don't want to keep mentioning it, but a number of people that I knew were there. They all claimed to have witnessed the entire last day's action and we've got video footage um, of them sleeping in the captain's club whilst claiming to have been there because why would you have ever have missed the last day at Medina because you were, just couldn't go home early enough the night before? Um, but Medina was Medina had all these elements, so it had the comeback. Um, it had Poulter making five birdies in a row to finish the, the Saturday uh, and at least give them... It was the making of Poulter. Um, I think it was, but then also the chest beating. It's when the Ryder Cup found its groove a little bit in terms of wanting to welcome fan participation and and on both sides and, and particularly on the first tee when Poulter, as we speak about a lot, when he went on and demanded that they, they kept cheering while he hit off. It was the first time that I recall ever seeing that, someone embracing it. And then, as we said, Bubba... To his credit, didn't ask him to quieten down, but was forced into a hole. And, you know, leadership is sometimes about doing things that are unexpected. And Kipper spoke a lot about the unexpected of, of you know, when he was catting for Allenby, of wanting to own the first tee in that playoff. Poulter set a tone that, that Bubba just had to go along with. And then every other player coming along was like, well, the Europeans had discussed it. and the US, it was a surprise. And I don't think it helped them. Polter was unbelievable that week, though. He turned many P 
people who, you know, many haters into just diehard fans of his instilling. Let me tell you guys, that Madonna course to, to birdie the five that he birdied was, you know, golf of, of just your greatest dreams. And to do it in that circumstance was uh, an incredible performance. And it might not have been the making of him, Phil, but it might have been the icing on the cake. And he's etched, and that's the Ryder Cup, the folklore that is referred to. And again, there's the um, the war on the shore. I mean, there's all these other elements, and we're not going to go into the history of it because others do a great job and a, and a truly great job of reminiscing from a podcast point of view if you want to go down that track. But, but I was really young then and learn learning sort of what it was all about, you know, around Kiowa. Whereas Medina was right in that sweet spot. A number of them have been, but that's the, that's Brookline through to Medina are the most unbelievable ones. And then Celtic Manor, I mean, Hunter Mahan or Meehan, um, his chipping ability. I mean, there's all these, these little iconic moments that come out of them and no doubt this will again. And it might be Brooks driving a green uh, or Bryson driving a green that was just not there to be driven. And it might be Bryson hitting a whale in the middle of a lake, and the whale shouldn't have been there. Like, it, it just has that element of this could go anywhere. It literally could go anywhere um, with Europe to win by a point. Or America could dominate and win by six. Uh, if it's close, I'm tipping Europe to win, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if the Americans ran away with it because you, you also can't deny that talent that, hey, if they're all on the game and they're putting well, they should win comfortably. Uh, it almost always inevitably comes down to the singles matches, and that's the strength of the Americans, surely, when they're going head-to-head. Yes and no. I think there's there's plenty of evidence to argue that both ways, and this is the point of if I'm playing bad, you look at the number of times one of our dear friends from the United States are playing badly, and um, they just effectively give up. Because this is the point about match play, is taking a nine and having hit two shanks and I've just had a nine, oh, well, there was that hole. It's it's all about the next hole. And, you know, Colin Montgomery, it's those interesting, it comes down to individuals. Colin Montgomery never lost an individual match. I mean, there's just something about being a great match player that has got nothing to do with being in the top 16 players in the world. No doubt. Um, Recent, recently I was chatting to Colin. <laughs> And the point that he was making was that you can't underestimate this concept of red on the board, blue on the board on that singles match. And if you are a couple down after eight, even if you can get yourself back, you know, keep the match going and keep in it and show some progress does have, and the Europeans uh, thrive on it. And Colin made this point strongly that they watch that board really closely and the momentum is an enormous thing. So, you know, that's, it comes back to the grit point that uh, my whisperer from Wisconsin was telling me about this morning. And, and uh, you know, it'll come, that grit will play a role. And at the end of the day, if it's close, he who has the most grit will win. Who will, who will turn out to be the Ryder Cup's Leona Maguire? Who do you reckon will be just the, the absolute star, rookie or otherwise, but just who will be the hero of this Ryder Cup? And who will be the villain? Who's going to bugger it up and be laughed at for eternity? Gee, Phil, that's a rather dark thought. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> well, he's usually cynical, so it does play into his character. For mine, I quite like – I'm just rapt to see um, Hovland get a Guernsey on the European team, for one. I think I think he's got some real X factor about it. And so 
I'm just I'm a bit nervous putting a rookie into into that level of. Um, well, I'll give you a rookie that would turn golf upside down given his celebrations after his major win. Can you imagine if Shane Lowry gets it done, <laughs> the celebrations afterwards? I mean, that was one of the great things. I was very lucky to be at the, the, the 2012 Ryder Cup and the highlight at Medina was on the Sunday night listening to the Europeans just go mental and singing at the presentation and the Americans up on the stage all sooking, magnificently led by Tiger with the major sook. And, you know, it was, I've been to grand finals in Melbourne. This was an, a sporting occasion and a crowd that you just, you just smiled for two hours. It was unreal. So if, if Shane was ha- uh, lucky enough to do something amazing and given his spirit and joy of life, it would be pretty special, I think. So I'm, I'm hoping more than picking Shane Larry does something magical and gets Europe over the line on Sunday. You know what, Phil? I think Shoffelet is going to absolutely change the game. I'm I'm tipping Xander, your boy, the X the X factor, the real X factor. He'll, he'll get the Yanks over, and he'll be a, he'll he'll be running for next president. I love him that much. It's fascinating. Where are you at, Phil? Who do you think? Well, I think in terms of poor, and I might as well get the bad out of the way. I, I've just got this feeling that Daniel Berger Daniel Berger went into the U.S. Open um, as one of the favourites, and just and this is without fact checking. Um, but just capitulated, was terrible. It might have been the PGA. It could have been any of it. Don't really care. So Daniel Berger, um, under the pump, is going to he's going to mahan. He's going to do a mahan. He's going to do um, without the white sunnies. He is going to pull some mahan crap. So that's what I'll declare for poor old Daniel Berger. Um, and then I think on the upside, I think Tommy Fleetwood. We keep talking about. Um, that Tommy Fleetwood, from a major's point of view, otherwise, you know, what what has he done? But when you look at what Fleetwood and Molinari did in Paris, Fleetwood is just going to take that feeling, and he is going to pants everybody and everything he touches. So Tommy Fleetwood will be the highest point scorer, and Daniel Berger will be the one who lipped out from three feet, um, but not only to have to pay the snake to own the snake and then pays all all his teammates, but to cost uh, the US team the win. There you go. I would love to see Polter have another absolutely outstanding Ryder Cup. Just to just to let the legend grow. I hope he forms up to it, um, you know, and he doesn't 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 lose some of the um, gravitas that he's he's earned over the years. So the big question is, why will Europe win? Uh, I think Europe. I'm picking Europe to win, and I think they'll win because they'll putt better under the gun. And I think at the end of the day, if you go back through and and talk to anyone involved with the Ryder Cup, when it's all said and done. He who holds the putts wins, and I think whistling will suit. I think the softer ground on the greens, the greens won't be that quick because there's a ton of slope and there's a ton of wind. So, you know, they can't get them that quick at the best of times. So, you know, while they'll be running faster than a normal European tour event, I think that they'll uh, they'll play more into the hands of the Europeans than the Americans. John, you've, you've mentioned a few, quite a few times that the putting is going to be the key to it. So I had a look at some of the putting stats and... The US, on paper at least, look to have the better rock rollers. So you've got um, – had a look at just the 20, 2021 stats from, on predominantly on the PGA Tour, granted, but Harris English and Shoffley were, um, were much were – you know, were quite high on the all the putting stats in general, um, much higher than the Europeans. Poulter was sort of the only Euro, European up in those stats. I think the US are, are actually stronger in the putting category this time 
than many of us are giving them credit for. I reckon Stricker has identified this with um with his what by picking his eleven of the top thirteen in the world. <laughs> yeah, that's right. If you have a look at who he had his picks, though, uh, three of them. You've, you... He's he put a lot of thought into that table. Oh. Hey, if it was saying, in reasonable shape when his automatic was... picks. We're the top six in the world. I think you're being unfair to the old Strick. You boys are not giving him credit where he's identified the thing that you're saying is going to be the key to it, and he's got three of the best, best statistically anyway, um, selected. So Daniel Berger and Scheffler's mum are not super high on the putting stats, and they were his. I wasn't talking. No, about but that. they were captain's picks. So what? So your points yeah, really he good. Had a lot of captain's picks. Your points are really good one, uh, Shooter, and what I'll commend you for your point. I just want to throw this in, that um, all of the automatic picks in the US team are the ones who are also the great putters. None of Stricker's picks, um, his captain's picks. How many captain's picks did he have? He got six. Yeah, three of them, Mm. I'm sure, were uh, (laughs) – hang on, bear with me. Uh, Harris English, uh, his putting stats are arguably the best of all of them. Um, not even so arguable. So by arguably, got, do you mean I can argue them? No, they are. No, they are. Um, Spieth, all right, a little lower but still reasonably high. Terrible uh, from six feet. Hang on. No, but this is a really critical point. Spieth, terrible from six feet and in, but outstanding from 6.1 to 15 feet. So he'll hold lots of putts to win holes but miss lots of putts to halve and lose them. And this is there's a lot of conversation around this, around Westwood, um, particularly Westwood and Sergio from a poor putting point of view. But if you go back to the open and you say, well, if Spieth, he holds three critical putts inside five feet and he wins the open. Yeah, I think, I think the putting stats can be a little misleading as well, Damo. And as there's, there's week-to-week putting stats on the PGA Tour, which is a completely different game of lag putting principally. And a Ryder Cup is a, it's just, just completely, there are so many more parts where it's one and done. And, you know, it's hard to change your mindset when you spend all year, uh, you know, grinding and grooming a stroke that avoids three putts at all costs. And that's what the great putts. It's because they want to win Snake. Well, that's true. Perhaps. Now, there, there's, a, there's an idea for Mr. Monaghan. We need to introduce Snake. <laughs> snake. <laughs> Oh, don't they? DraftKings will go nuts with that. But I think so. But to the point about putting, is it winning around putting? Is you've got Bryson will do what he does, and they're all going to play their natural game. And I think this is what will happen with um, to try and leave the putting thing out of the out of the equation a little bit more. Is they'll set set it up as they did set up with Brookline. They'll they'll put pins in relatively easy spots because there's no point making them difficult or making them on you know just inside the the slope lines because it becomes difficult for the US team to putt. And this is about a US setting it up for a US team to win. So there's some, you know, I saw some of the footage around whistling straights. There are some incredible pin positions that you'd love to see a pin put, but it won't be for the singles matches. It, so it might be for the four ball or it might be for the foursomes. Um, but there's a, there's a couple of spots that just won't, it just won't be used and won't exist because it t- will test the putting of a side that their top six are outstanding and their bottom six are, are just okay. And Westwood, who gets caned about his crap putting, can't miss from five foot and in. Sergio, maybe not so much. Mark this on paper. From a favouritism point of view, um, if I've got numbers two, three, four, five, six, seven, nine, ten, 10 and 11 in the world playing, 
some of which somehow were captain's picks. I mean, that's the extraordinary thing about this setup is that Stricker needed to pick the ninth-ranked player in the world um, just to make it into the Ryder Cup, um, whereas for Europe, Bernard or Bernd Wiesberger um, was an automatic qualifier at 61 in the world. It, it, it talks to a very different approach from the two teams in the two countries when it come, or two groups when it comes to the Ryder Cup, it is that Bernd at 61 was an automatic qualifier thanks to the very last event of the qualifying series, the BMW Championship. So I'm not sure there's a form line for Europe. I'm not sure there's a skill line for Europe. But what they do have, shooter to your point, is they've got, they've got history that says they turn up, they know how to play match play, and they, they bond uh, as a team that, from the word go. Do they need to marry up those selection um, policies a little better to, to even it up, do we think? Or are we comfortable with how it, how it operates? Well, historically, the captain chooses his selection method and, and it all went pear-shaped, obviously, with COVID and the dual season. And, and so they really were, to some degree, making it up as they went this year. So I, I think we'll come back to a more standardised policy moving forward. But the, the only other point I think that will make the difference between the, the two teams that I'd make is I, I think the win will be the team that prepares best. And historically, Europe has been a better prepared team. We saw the example down in the President's Cup where the Americans turned up poorly prepared, flew from the other side of the world, got in on Monday, played like on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you know, but eventually the talent came out in the end because they were just that much stronger. Whereas in a Ryder Cup, the, the talent gap isn't as big as it is in the President's Cup and and therefore I will say the winner will be the team who prepares best. Okay, I think it's time now, boys, for a Tales from the Executive Vice President, otherwise known as the Free Man. John, I believe you have a, a tip for Australian golfers. I do have a tip for Australian golfers. I was uh, lucky enough to head to Bandon Dunes a couple of weeks back. And um, firstly, let me say, fantastic facility. Uh, and secondly, let me say, it's nothing that you won't find at six courses on the Mornington Peninsula in Melbourne. I think the key difference is, uh, one, it takes you nine hours to get to Bandon. It's closer to go to Scotland from Chicago than it is to get to Bandon. It is the hardest place in the world to get to. So for me, it was a flight, Chicago, Phoenix, three and a quarter hours, two-hour layover, two-and-a-half-hour flight to Eugene, which is the closest commercial airport to Bandon, and it's a two-and-a-half-hour drive from Eugene down to the course. So it's in the middle of freaking nowhere. And then for the honour of all of that travel, they charge you 325 for a green fee, uh, 150 or 100 bucks for a caddy, but you're meant to tip them 50 bucks. The accommodation's 209, and so add your food and booze. And I tell you, it is a rich man's paradise. That uh, while spectacular and fantastic, is nothing better than you'll get on the morning to Peninsula in Melbourne. So my tip for uh, Aussie golfing travellers: when you're allowed to travel again. Just save your bucks and uh, head down the peninsula and, and give Bandon a miss. But if you ever get the chance, don't ever miss the chance to play at Whistling because that is truly a treat and is super easy to get to. Get to. And on that note, we'll bring today's Tenuous Links Golf Podcast to a close. A big thanks again to our special guest and friend of the show, John Craig, Executive Vice President of Tour Edge. Thanks, JC, for joining us. 
Please send us any of your thoughts to swagger at golfbarons.com. Be sure to sign up at golfbarons.com. Follow us on our socials, Insta, Facebook, and YouTube, and enjoy watching Golf Barons on KO and Foxtel On Demand. Thanks again for listening, Barons. Enjoy the Ryder Cup. Until next time, remember to add some swagger to your swag.